And the Bible is the same way. The Bible has a specific teaching. The Bible has a specific theme. We've talked about it many, many times. And uh, the Bible has one central concept that God wants to get across to man. And uh, He wants you and I as Christians to know and understand that. Then along with that, the Bible also contains many practical teachings or doctrines that are maybe on a lower level as far as uh, what they deal with that, that form biblical principles. It's these that you hear me talk about all the time that are the key uh, to success in your, in your daily Christian walk with the Lord. Bible basically or doctrine, Bible doctrine basically is simply God's right teaching on all the issues of life that we have to face down here as we live our lives on planet earth. In fact, you find that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we've talked about this passage many, many times, that the Bible says that all uh, Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And the first thing that is profitable for is, the, is doctrine because you and I as God's people have to have a sense of right and wrong. For you and I to have a relationship with God and to really uh, be used of God, and what we're going to talk about today, you have to have a common sense or an understanding of what is right versus what is wrong. You know, my grandmother used to say, God bless her soul, she was a great lady, and she used to, uh, she had all kinds of wisdom. And I wish back then, you know, that I'd have written down many of the things that she said. And, uh, but the, many of the things that she said, I did remember. And she told me one time, she used to say this to all of us all the time, she used to say this, when we were going to church, she'd always say to us before we left the house, we all have our, you know, I'm just a little guy, we'd all have our little Bibles tucked on our arms. And she used to say, now, Bobby, the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. And that's a great little piece of wisdom that she got, because that's why we have to learn doctrine. You have to learn right teaching. The Bible's design, one of the designs, there's many aspects to the Bible, but uh, the Bible's design is to keep you from sin, and when you learn the Word of God, that's exactly what it does when you understand the principles. And that's why last week we began to talk about the depravity of man. We saw some great truths, because uh, I told you that the key uh, to your real success as a child of God is having that balance of understanding who you really are and seeing yourself as you really are versus how God sees you. And let me just state some obvious things again so we kind of get into context because there's people here that were not here last week and, and just uh, by way of remembrance. When you get saved, at that point in your life, God sees you as sinless. He sees you as absolutely perfect as far, in fact, the Bible says the moment you get saved in God's mind, you're already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're already as good as in heaven. And just as an unsaved man or an unsaved woman, if they're not saved, they're just as good as in hell. The Bible says the wrath of God abideth on them already. But a saved person, once you get saved, we know the process. We went through it a couple of weeks ago. Spiritual circumcision saw how that the soul is cut loose from the flesh. At that particular point in time, God views you as sinless as far as your soul is concerned. And we talked about it last week, what God had to do to have fellowship with you and I who were totally worthless and we are totally sinners. God had to separate part of me out. And the new nature, my soul, was sealed by the Holy Spirit of God under the day of redemption. And that forms my new nature. The old nature is my flesh. And you and I will be stuck with our flesh till Jesus comes back. That's one of the great themes or one of the great doctrines in Romans chapter 8. 
We get a little bit farther down the line, you're going to find that Romans chapter 8 deals with the redemption of this body. Someday you're going to get a glorified body and this corruptible, that this flesh that we all struggle with right now is going to put on an incorruption. And that's the day that we're all looking for and that's the day when Christ comes back and we get our glorious body. But you have to begin to understand the process of, of how God looks at you and how God sees you in those two lights. And there's a balance in that. I know today that I'm saved and because I'm saved, I know God looks at me as His child and God looks at me through His blood that was applied to my sin. But I'm not under any illusion that I don't struggle in the flesh. And I also know, as the Bible says in Romans chapter 7, that in this flesh dwelleth no good thing. So the battle we have is, is the battle between the flesh and the spirit or the old nature and the new nature. And when we start to talk about the depravity of man, when you and I got saved, we were saved from our depravity, but we still have the flesh that is totally depraved and just as, and just as vile as it ever was. In other words, what got saved about you the day you got saved was not your flesh. It was your soul. Now, there's coming a day when Christ gives you that glorified body that even your flesh gets chained and glorified and you put on the Lord Jesus Christ in a physical sense, spiritual physical sense, but not today. We still have to struggle with it. In fact, I, I likened it last week to your flesh being a dead corpse. And I told you that before you got saved, you were stuck to a dead corpse. Once you got saved, God separated you from that dead corpse, your flesh, but now you still have to carry it around. And it goes everywhere that you go and, and everywhere that I go, and that's where the battle really takes place in your life and my life. And we've talked about it many, many times. On Memorial Day, I talked about the soldier and talked about out of the book of Ephesians, the armor of God. All of that armor that's in there is nothing more for you and I to get over the victory uh, of our flesh and the struggles that we have to go through. Now, I want to go back to Romans chapter 3 this morning, and I want to look at this passage again in these 10 verses and, and read them, and we'll come back, and we'll begin to break these pieces down uh, and look at it and uh, shows you how that uh, we can uh, really be uh, uh, used of God, even though we are still uh, totally depraved as far as our flesh is concerned. Now, here's what it says. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They all are gone out of their way and are be together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, and their tongue as they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall there be no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we love you. We ask you today to take the Word of God, to quiet our hearts, that each one of us may uh, confess whatever sin is in our life that may be lingering there, Lord, that would hinder the Holy Spirit of God from coming in and, and giving us the doctrine and the teachings that we need today. 
We pray, Lord, for those that uh, uh, we mentioned earlier, Lord, and, uh, and uh, with all the different issues and struggles that people are going through in their lives, both physically and spiritually, and losing a loved one, we pray, Lord, that you'll comfort them. But today, Lord, we ask you right now that the Holy Spirit of God, you'll take over this time, quiet our hearts, give us what we need today to see and understand these great truths. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. There's a couple of things that if you're really going to be effective for God that you have to understand about yourself. One of the things is you need to understand what your strengths are. You know, what makes a marriage a good marriage for Christian couples is, uh, uh, and this is where the balance comes in, what makes a really good marriage is when a, when a Christian uh, husband and wife, they look at each other and they both have strengths and they both have weaknesses. And maybe the wife's strength will be the husband's weakness, and maybe the uh, vice versa uh, uh, in, in the husband's case. And you know what? That's a good thing because what, what makes it work, what makes it work is the fact that, that you recognize what your strengths are, and then you recognize what your weaknesses are, and you balance each other out in that. You know what? It's the same way in a church. Not everybody has the same strengths here. Not everybody has the same weaknesses. We all have strengths, and we all have weaknesses and uh, therefore, a good church, uh, a working, viable church, uh, somebody who is, and if you ever pastor a church, you always want to remember that concept because what you want to do is blend the two together. You want to let people's strengths offset people's weaknesses, and you want to, and then the other people who may be weak in this area will be strong here, and you balance it out, and it becomes a total concept. To do that, you have to understand what your limitations are. Many times we, we, we go beyond what we can actually do. Uh, you know, you, uh, uh, I've talked to men who were uh, guys that owned businesses before, you know, and when they interview somebody to go to work, you know, the guy wants the job, obviously, and he knows it's a good place to work, so he'll overstate his qualifications, so to speak. He'll say he can do a lot of things when actually he can't do them very well. And when you, when you put him on a job someplace and you see his work or you see uh, put him out with somebody else and he has to make a cabinet or he has to put in a hardwood floor or he has to do some things and it's very obvious that he, his, his limitations uh, were not stated exactly correctly when you, when you hired the guy. We're all that way. We all, and I think one of the key things that you need to have in your life and certainly I need to have in my life is to be able to understand what our limitations are and then work within those limitations. I think that the bounds of those limitations should continually be pressed forward. I think as you grow and you learn more, there's more that you can do. Your, your, some of your weaknesses turn into strengths and, and your limitation bounds begin to move outward. But I don't ever know a time in our life I don't ever know a time in our lives where we will not have limitations to some form. And I think being honest with ourselves uh, and realizing that is really key of understanding who we are and understanding uh, what we're all about and how that no, the very best we are, we still fall short of uh, what God. And what I want to do today is this. I'm going to paint a really black picture. And this picture, uh, because we're going to talk about the depravity of man. And I want you to see and understand, because I think you need to see that. We need to see that about ourselves. And I want to show you uh, how that in the Bible, there's, there's seven things that make up the depraved man. Saved man. Saved man. They fit in an unsaved person. But I told you last week, I have never, met, I never found anything that a saved person can do that a child of God can't get into other than dying and going to hell. And you'll see how that does it work. But then I want to come back and I want to show you 
The fact that we are depraved, the fact that everything that I do, everything that you do, everything I attempt to do for God has to be washed and continually washed in the blood. How in the world, when we understand how depraved we really are, how in the world can we ever do something for God? I want to show you how that works today. It's going to be a very key time this morning in helping make sure. Uh, I guess of all the messages that I have preached and all the things that I have laid out, uh, the one that is going to save you at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be what you're going to hear today. And I think that most of God's people, when they wind up at the judgment seat of Christ, are going to go there with a lot of grandioso ideas. They're going to think, wow, I did this, I did that, and I did all of this, and I built this, and I accomplished this. And I think when they get there, they're going to find out that it was absolutely worthless as far as God's concerned. I don't want you to be in that state. I want you to come to the point in your life where you, you grow and have everything that God has for you at the judgment seat of Christ. My job is, is, is basically onefold, and that is to give you and help you understand everything that you need to know that you have the best shot at standing at that judgment seat of Christ and getting a full and a sure reward. And that's what I want to focus on today. So we're going we're gonna to come through some of this stuff. And, uh, you know, it's hard when I talk about the depravity of man. You know, the Bible says there's none that do with good, no, not one. The Bible says there's none that understand, none that seeketh after God. The Bible says that the very best state we're in is altogether vanity. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, when you look at that, if you, if you don't get it in perspective, I mean, you'll walk out of here saying, well, what the heck, man? Why should I even try <laughs> whatever I do? Is, and, and it's not that way. But I want to paint it that way, and then I want to come back and show you how it all worked. You know, man left to himself. Talk about an unsaved man for a moment. Man left to himself only gets worse. He doesn't get better. The worst thing, and I've told you this before, the absolutely worst thing that God can do to anybody is to take his hand off of that person, allow that person to go through uh, what they're going through in life, whether it be God's chastisement. I've heard a lot of people say, well, the, chast God, the chastisement of God is really hard, and, and I, don't, I don't like when God comes down and has to deal with me. You'd like it a lot less if God didn't come down and deal with you. Because let me tell you something. You know what you got in this world today? If you've ever been to Europe, if you've ever been to Europe, uh, in the last 10, 15, 20 years, what you got in Europe is a country that God has completely taken his hand off. And he simply said, just go do whatever you want to do. I have no interest in this nation anymore. And there's a reason for that in history. You find a lot of the same stuff down in South America. You found it in Central America. You find it uh, all through this world, and you're, you're beginning to see it in the United States. All of these nations, all of these nations have had at one time the Word of God that impacted them. And maybe you don't see it in the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, but if you go back and take a biblical examination of history, you'll find that God gave the Word of God to every nation today that is now in apostasy. And America was the last great nation to get that book, and she's done the same thing with it. And right now, what we're seeing around us in our world, and it's a scary time, scary time. But the bottom line is this, what you're seeing, and I say it all the time, you now have seen the results of a country that for over a hundred years have thrown God's Word out the, out the window. And we're slowly seeing God take His hand off this once great country. And brother, that is what, when that happens, that, it's an incredible thing. And uh, it's, a, it's a terrible thing to go through. And the worst thing that can happen is when God takes His hand off anybody or any nation. Now I want to talk to you about the seven things 
in your life and my life that make us the problem child that we are with God. And uh, these things, uh, I call these things the seven things, the seven makeups of my depravity. And I don't talk to this, I'm not talking this to you this morning, I'm talking it to me this morning. This is where I'm at, and this is what I have to understand. And the first thing I want to talk about is, is my heart. I'm not even going to put it in, in, in your heart. I'm going to preach this message to me. That way nobody can go out of here and say, well, he just, no, no. I'm going to preach eternally to me today. And the first thing I want to tell you about is my heart. I'm, in 1955, my mom t- t- went to, took me to a movie. I was five years old then. My mom took me to a movie that I have never forgotten. It was Davy Crockett. And I still remember, I'll tell you what, Fess Parker played Davy Crockett. How many else saw that movie? Ah, oh, look at the old folks in here dating yourselves. Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier, born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, greatest state in the land of the free. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Now they changed it. He opened a bar when he was only three. But anyway, I'll never forget it. And yes, back then when you went to the movie theaters, they stole Davy Crockett memorabilia when he went out the door. And I'll never forget, my mom bought me a coonskin cap, bought me a muzzle-loading rifle, and for the next six months of my life, probably even till today, I was Davy Crockett. And uh, you know what? I cried in that movie because at the end, he gets killed in the Alamo. And, uh, you know, and, I, and the last thing they show is Davy up there, you know, he's the last one left, and he was, he was swinging the rifle, you know, and, and then it just kind of fades out, and music comes up, and, you know, and Davy dies. When George, his, his sidekick, uh, died. I mean, I cried. I was a little guy, man. I mean, I was in love with Davy Crockett. And I remember that movie for years and years. And one of the greatest lines that Davy says in that movie, look, I still call him Davy. One, one of the greatest lines he says in that movie that, that I remember to this day, he's talking to somebody and he simply says this. And it's this kind of homespun Davy Crockett uh, philosophy of life that, you know, that, that, that was, 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 was put out, you know, and he says, he says to somebody, I forget who it was, but he says this, he says, you know what, they're having a little deep discussion, and he says to this guy, he says, you know what, you'll never go wrong if you always follow and just listen to what your heart tells you to do. Now, I got to say to you, after all those years, I'm 58 now, long, t- a lot of water under the bridge, and I want to tell you something, that was the greatest lie that I have ever heard in my life. Follow your heart. And I'll tell you what, made me burn my coonskin cap. I ain't kidding you. My, once you get saved and you realize how wicked your heart is. You know what? And that's why I'm starting with the heart. Because Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see, who can know it? Then he answers the question in verse 10 of who can know it. I, the Lord, search the heart. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. You know what the reins are? The reins are on a horse. And when you ride a horse, you lead that horse with the reins. You know what that rein is? That's your spirit. And God tries your spirit. He sees which way you're going to go. I, the Lord, uh, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 says, He says, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct the path. 
And, of course, the first thing I want to talk to you about is how rotten my heart is and the concept of how hard it is to keep the right attitude of heart. And you know what? You need to know that my basic heart, attitude of heart, is what you love. It's what I love. And when a man who's not saved uh, loves everything else in this life and he loves everything but God and he, he thinks that he's following in his heart, you know what you do? You know what your heart does? It winds up deceiving you. We use the word, we have used the word love so much in a wrong context that we are absolutely totally deceived about the definition of love. I kid my, kid my children all the time and even my wife about what we, and even some of you about what we love. I love these shoes. I love this house. I love that color on you. I love this. I love that. Oh, I love that suit. Wow, I really love this purse. Wow, I, no, I'm only using girl stuff. Guys, I'm keeping off this thing here, you know. Oh, I love this shotgun. I love this fish rod. I love this boat, see. We, we, in a, we as American Christians, we like to love things that do not have the ability to love us back. You cannot love, it's absolutely impossible to love an inanimate object. And if you, if you think you can, you have deceived yourself. Love is an expression that can only be absorbed by something that can, can express it back. You can't love an inanimate object. I love this door. Don't you just love this door? Oh, what are you going to do? Go up and kiss it? I love this door. Okay? This is my, I love this door. See how stupid that sounds when you think about it? You can't love a door. And if you do, I'm worried about you. And that's what he's saying. The heart is deceitful above all things. Hey, every problem you and I have, excuse me, forget you, every problem I have, every problem I have will be in accordance with following my heart rather than God's heart. You know what the Bible says? Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. That's the key. The key for you and for me, especially for me, is to, Colossians 3, 2, set my affections on things above and not on the things of this earth. My job, my job is to develop my attitude of heart and understand my heart will deceive me. My heart will tell me. My heart will rationalize. My heart will justify. My heart will say, go ahead and buy it when you know you don't have the money to buy it. My heart will say, it'll be okay. Go ahead and do that when you know it's wrong to do it. That's what your heart does. That's what my heart does. It'll deceive me every time. And every problem I struggle with, it will be in accordance with me following my heart instead of following what the Word of God says and following God's heart. All my life, and I've been in this business for a little while now, all my life I've seen people, God's people, they talk about how much they love God. And you see them all the time. My, my whole life, it, when you start to deal with people, you just find people like this. And I feel sorry for them to a certain extent. They talk about how much they love God, how much they read the Bible. But the, 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 their life is a train wreck when it comes to the reality of life. Their emotions are everywhere. They have no solidarity of what they do. And, and I look at that and I, you know, somebody says, well, what's wrong with that? Hey, what's wrong with that is they have been deceived by their heart. I call them butterfly Christians. I knew a lady years ago, one of the nicest ladies I ever met in my life. And honest to goodness, this lady had some real struggles in life. She was married to a guy, and, and uh, he, wasn't, he had some issues too. But, you know, they, 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 they came to church every Sunday. 
uh, they, they did everything they were supposed to do, but every time something happened in life, she just, and he couldn't either, they just couldn't get to the principles of the Word of God to, to get the truth of how they, should, how they should operate. You know what? When you get the Word of God in your heart, and you get it grounded in your heart, it tells you, it tells you what to feel about any given circumstances. You know you've only got so many emotions in you. You know, a couple of weeks ago, remember the guy up in Connecticut that, got, that had the video of him getting run over in the street? And, I mean, that's a terrible thing. I mean, he's, and he was jaywalking, by the way, but he's, and I don't think the car that hit him really saw him because if you look at the video, uh, one car goes right in front of him and the guy behind him hits him right there. And I don't know how he could have seen him. He didn't stop either, by the way, but anyway. But the guy is laying in the road, and he's laying there for, what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and nobody, nobody, nobody comes around to see how he is. Nobody comes over to ask if he can help. One guy on a little motor scooter comes around and does a circle on him and then takes off again. You see people on the side putting their hands on their head. People there do it, wanting to, but nobody did anything. Nobody did anything. Now, you know what's wrong with us today? Now, I know there's always a, you know, the other side of it is, well, you know, yeah, the guy, you go over and help the guy, and, you know, then he gets better, and he sues you for everything you got. I understand that. But you know what? We have become so desensitized to things. Somebody looks at that and somebody gets says, well, that ain't nothing. I saw 15 guys butchered last night on television. Well, I watched Freddy Krueger. He was hanging them on meat hooks in color on my big widescreen where everything was right there. And you know what? Sounds around. Screams coming everywhere. Blood. We even got blood on the carpet. We are so desensitized to exactly what is going on around us that we lose touch with it. We've been deceived. We've been deceived. I want to tell you something. The only thing that will keep your heart from being deceived is understanding the biblical principles. I call this woman, this couple, the butterfly. She, they could never get to a thing. And I talked to her one time, and this was the kind of people, if they went out in the morning and the sun was out, it was a good day in Christ. If they went out and it was cloudy and it was dark and it was gloomy, they were depressed in a bad day. Their spirituality, ladies and gentlemen, was based on the weather report. Well, I don't know what they do now with all the people. You can't get anything. They'd have to say, well, let's don't get depressed tonight. Let's wait till the morning to see what the weather really is going to be like. You know? And they, they were to the place where, and she told me one time, she said, you know what? She says, I, I was struggling with this issue in my heart, and I had this problem. And she said, I'm out in the backyard. And she says, I was just praying to God. Oh, God, give me an answer. Oh, God, give me something. And she says, Bob, you won't believe it. At that particular point in time, she said, I was standing there, and out of nowhere, this beautiful, colored butterfly came around, and it lit right down in front of me. And just sit there, and, and you know, and she says, I knew at that point, God had given me my prayer. I call her the butterfly woman. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. If you think God answers you through insects, when he's given you a book of absolute principles, I don't know what your problem is. Other than you have deceived yourself in thinking that's the way God works. God doesn't need, I've, I've had other people, honestly, they expect, you know, that they, they pray. And they say, oh God, I need this. And oh God, I need that. And then they just wait for God to answer. You know, and they're looking around like God, they're going to walk into the bathroom, you know. And they're on the mirror with the, after you get out of the shower, God's going to say, this is what you need to do. God, you know. 
The answers are already in a book. He's not going to come down and supernaturally drop it. You've got to realize that your heart, my heart, the number one thing it'll do is it'll deceive me. It'll get me to believe in butterflies. It'll get me to believe on smoke and mirrors. It'll get me to believe that an F-16 out of Whiteman goes out of control. And before it crashes, God magically pushes his afterburners and spells in the sky with a smoke trail. Oh, I wish he would have just stayed in the air a few more minutes. I didn't get the last of that message before he crashed. You got it all in here, folks? Your heart, my heart will deceive me. You can say you love God, and you, but if you can't keep his principles and know what his principles are, the problem is my heart deceives me. My Bible says if any man love me, he'll keep my words. What's the point of talking about how much you love God or me, how much I love God? What is the point of me talking about how much I love God when the bottom line is when push comes to shove, I never use it or it doesn't work or it doesn't last? Your heart is the first thing. You know what the second thing is? Now we find this in Romans. Some of these are in Romans, some of them are not, but they're all through the Bible. The next area is found in Romans chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And it's my mouth. Not your mouth, my mouth. You know what you do with your mouth? In fact, it talks about the throat. It talks about the tongue. It talks about my lips. It talks about uh, my mouth. You know what you do, what I do with all of those? Those have to do with my ability to communicate. They have my, my ability to speak, my ability to form words, my ability to enunciate, form thoughts into concepts of speech as I communicate. I told you last week, as a Christian, you and I can do everything an unsaved man can do except die and go to hell after we're saved. And boy, when you look at this, it says their throat is an open sepulcher. You know what a sepulcher is? That's a grave. It's a tomb. You know, you go to the graveyard and everybody's buried in the ground, but you find rich people, they get buried above ground. And they'll make these little mausoleums or these little, they used to call them sepulchers, the little stone crypts that you see above ground. And you look in the window and there's, you know, four or five people buried in the walls on each side with cement in front with their name on. That's a sepulcher. And an open sepulcher would be somebody just laying in there where you could, you could, you could walk in and there's just corpses laying all over the place. And after a while, you get six or seven of them in there, going to smell pretty bad and it's going it's to be a bad deal. That's what my throat is. My throat is an open tomb with dead people laying all over the place, smelling the thing up. Then it says their tongue, my tongue, used for the purpose of deceit, you see. And that's what we do. Under, under my lips is the poison of asp. An asp is a snake, a poisonous snake found in the Middle East. It's what Cleopatra had a little basket when she, when Mark Anthony and her broke up, you know, breaking up's hard to do. And when that happened, she went into the, into the, into the, into the, into the room there, into her chambers and had a, her servant bring her a basket. And, and you saw the thing, you know, pulls the little thing up, big old asp in there, you know, sticks her hand in there, counts to three and the snake bites her and she dies. Like that solved her problems. Under the lips, poison of ass, whose mouth is full of bitterness and cursing. You see, you know why? You know why, as God's child, I have such a tough time with my mouth? Do you know why? And now these things are in the right order. You know why that you and I, for if I be allow me to put it in a general context, you know why that you and I have such a tough time with our mouth sometimes, say things we shouldn't say? I'll tell you why. Because Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I just speak what's already in there. 
You see, I, and, and the Bible says, who can control the tongue? I mean, the hardest thing for you and I, or for me, forget you, the problem, hardest thing for me to control is my tongue. Because you want to just, you know, it, it, it is. It, this, because your heart deceives you, and the next thing you know, that's what James says. Chapter 3, verse 10. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Wherewith, bless we God, even the Father. Oh, I love this. Wherewith, the tongue, the one that was just full of deadly poison. Wherewith, we God, even the Father, wherewith curse we men, which are made after the sin. You know what he's saying? He's saying there's Christians that speak. Nah, certainly. There's Christians that speak out of both sides of their mouth. They, they praise God here and curse men out of the other side. That's what he's saying. Don't tell me, don't tell me, we as God's people can do everything an unsaved person can do. And there's a place where he says, verse 9, he tells you that the tongue no man can tame. It's unruly evil, full of deadly poison. And then he says, wherewith, the tongue, we bless God, even the Father, and wherewith, curse we men. Speak to God here, speak to men here. That's what we do. No, excuse me. That's what I do. That's what I do. Now, this is what modern-day Christianity, New Testament Christianity in America is all about. Talking out of both sides of your mouth at the same time. Giving God lip service. Telling God you want to do this, but then going out and doing something else. I'll tell you what. The number one problem, if you ever pastor a church someday, the number one problem you're going to have to get over, and it's the hardest thing. I've seen guys in the ministry that just could not deal with this aspect of it. And I, it's the hardest thing. It really is. It's the hardest thing, but it's the number one thing that if you're going to be in front of people, you're going to be in charge of people, and you're going to deal with people, and you get a bunch of people, and you got people from all walks of life. Hey, let me tell you something. You better get used to what he's saying here in James chapter 3, verse 10. You're going to have people who bless you out of this side of their mouth and curse you out of that side of your mouth. It's just the way it is. That's why I started to tell you rule number one in dealing with people, rule number one in ministry, can't take it personal. Because you're representing God and you've got to say some things that sometimes people don't like. And one of the things you better get in your brain if you're ever going to be in charge of people is you're not running a popularity contest. You're not trying to see how many people will like you. You're not trying to win, influence friends and, in, and, and, all your, and influence enemies. You're not doing that. You're up here to preach the truth. And sometimes the truth, people don't like it. And you know what? God could come down and just get a loudspeaker up here. He could put a burning bush up here like he did Moses. Every Sunday, we could bring a burning a bush in here and set it right up here on this flat podium. And all of a sudden, once Danny was done singing and the song seemed to be done, we got the offering in and we just all sit down and poof, it starts to burn. And out of that burning bush, God's voice speaks. He did it with Moses. We could, bring in a, we could bring in a donkey, like Balaam's ass. Bring him in here in the book of Numbers and just bring him up here. And God wanted to supernaturally do it. God couldn't speak to an ass. Well, I guess he is to a certain extent. But he could bring a big old donkey up here. And after Danny got done singing, we took up the offering, made the announcements. Then that, that God could just have that ass speak and tell you what he wanted. You know what he chose to do? He chose to do it through men. He's chosen to do through some of you in time. And I'm telling you something. The first thing you better understand and realize that whatever decision you make, whatever you say, 
However you try to make it work, whether it's right or wrong, people are going to, some are going to like it, some are going to not like it. I don't ever know of a decision in my life I ever made in the ministry, and you won't either, where some of them like it and some of them don't. And you know what? If you're not beyond that, and you don't know that this is what God's Spirit has showed me to do, and I'm going to do this, because it's not because popular, or you don't like it, or you do like it, or you're my friend and I'm going to do it. You do it because God said, this is what I want you to do. Stay home and stay out of the ministry. I've seen it mess up more young men when they get into a place of leadership, and they do not have that fundamental concept of leadership. And that is leadership is you're out there all by yourself and you'll make the decision and you'll take the criticism for it. And just as James said, people will bless God out of this side and curse you out of this side. It's the way it is. After a while, you learn to enjoy it. But that's just the way that it is. Their throat, their tongues, under their lips, whose mouth. Now, the third thing, the next issue is man's eyes. And this is also found in Romans chapter 3. And he says here, in this context, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I can safely say this morning, being some kind of, somewhat of a student of history, that the number one downfall of every society and every nation, because when you know history and you know the world scenario, and how the Spirit of God begins moving in Genesis and which direction he goes through the Bible, through man's recorded history, you also realize that every nation on the face of this planet at one time had the Word of God. When the Bible says that God is the true light that lighteth every man to come into the world, that's also true of nations. And there is not a nation on this earth today. They may be vile, they may be pagan, they may be completely uh, have lost any resemblance of God, much like Europe. If you would go to Czechoslovakia today and you'd walk into Czechoslovakia, well, it's not called Czechoslovakia anymore, but if you would go over there and you would walk through that country, you would find a group of people who know nothing about God, want to know nothing about God, have no Bible, don't go to church. They live for the time that they're in, and it's a whole humanistic world, and it's a whole society that if you walked in here, you'd have said, wow, do they ever need God? Well, maybe they do need God, but my friend, there was a time when they had God. Back in the 15 or 1600, the whole nation of Czechoslovakia followed one man, John Huss. The whole nation followed one man with the right Bible, with the right message, followed one, the whole nation. Where they're at today. Where they're at today. And the demise of any society, the demise of any country, the demise of any church, any Christian, is it a place where you come where you don't fear God anymore and you fear the things of man or you fear the things of this world more than you fear a holy God? You know what America's problem is? I'll give you a good contrast. Back in 1912, we had a, a terrible disaster. And I would say for the time period, the disaster back in 1912 would probably be on par with a 911 disaster that took place with the Twin Towers. But, it, I mean, given the time period and the way the world was. But in 1912, it was the, it was the sinking of the Titanic. And the Titanic was, was out of the White Star Line that, fl that, that went from New York to, uh, to Liverpool, and they, they sailed back and forth. And, and this, this, was the, this was the Titanic's maiden voyage. Now, most people don't know this, but there was two other ships. That they, when they built the Titanic, they built, they built two more ships that were on the same size and identical to the Titanic. One was named the Gigantic, 
And I, I forget what the other one was named, but it was something humongous name like that about Titanic being, you know. You know un, and, and then it was, the, it was the marvel of the shipbuilding world. In the New York Times and in the London Times, when, it, when she, was, she was bragged about and she made her maiden voyage, you know what, the world, the world had come to the place. Now, you've got to remember, we're right in the middle. I don't mean to bore you with a lot of history. We're right in the middle of the industrial age. We're now coming out of the agricultural age into the industrial age. We're now seeing where men are, are making things that, are, that are, they've never seen before. Skyscrapers are going up. New York. Ships. A little bit later on, airplanes. And then it goes from there. We're right in the middle of the, of the industrial age where man's, uh, a renaissance period for man's thinking that they're building these great things. And here was this Titanic who had a sister ship, the Gigantic, and another ship whose name I can't remember. But they're all incredible, and they're, and they're large. And it went around the world that, that this Titanic was going to make her maiden voyage. And they said in the New York Times, and they said in the London Daily Times, a ship that even God himself could not destroy. Now, you know what? That is the wrong thing to say. If I'd have read that newspaper, and I'd have been a Christian, I don't think I ever got on that ship. Uh, you know, you, you, you look at those things and you think of those things and you see those things and you wonder yourself, what in the world is going on? You know what happened? The Titanic on its maiden voyage hit an iceberg. In less than an hour and a half, it went to the bottom. They didn't have enough lifeboats. You know why? Because they thought this was a ship that God couldn't sink. She was unsinkable. So they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't put enough life jackets on. They didn't put enough lifeboats on. Oh, no, this ship, we are so great. We are man. Look what we got. We don't need God. We, got, we built a ship that will, yeah, right. And that night, that freezing night, though so many hundreds of people went into the, thousands of people went into the water. Water about 32 degrees, you dead in two minutes. And after that great tragedy, you know what? A revival spread across England. God had the men and the preachers on the right spot. You know where the revival of the Titanic started? It started with one of the passages. You never read about this. You certainly didn't see it while, while Leonardo DiCaprio was fornicating down in the hold of a ship in a car with some gal. You didn't get that story. But let me tell you, the real revival started on the ship with a man by the name of John Harper who was coming to America to preach a revival. And he was on the Titanic. And a witness testified to this. Many witnesses. That they goes into the water. And they're in the water. And they're screaming and they're yelling. And they say, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And out through the mist with the screaming and the yelling, they heard a man's voice with a deep Scottish brogue that caught out clear in the night. What do you do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's what you do, my friend. And he drowned. Don Harper drowned. But you know what he was doing? He was preaching, going down. I've often wondered what, what I'd do. I can't speak for you. I used to fly a lot. I often wondered, and I always, I always had a, a quick sermon ready in case the wings came off. I'd always try to pick my seat in the cabin where I could be up against the emergency exit so I wouldn't let anybody out and just say, no use getting out, but here's what you can. You want to escape? Let me show you the way to escape. Now, I don't know if I'd be screaming and yelling like everybody else or not, but old John Harper didn't. 
There he was in that frigid water, and that's where the revival started. And boy, it brought America and England back to her knees. It brought a reality that you think you're big. You know why? Because your heart deceives you. Your heart deceives you. And in your mouth, out of your heart, your mouth speaks. And then your eyes come to the place where you, you really start to think we're something. Boy, look at me. Boy, look what I can do. Look at this boat. And then the dumbest thing you could say, it's a boat so good, God himself couldn't sink it. God up in heaven looking at Michael and saying, write that down. I want to show you something here in about a week. <laughs> Get that down here, what he said. Brought a great revival. You know why? Because back then in America, America still feared God. You're at the end of the Philadelphian church age. The common unsaved man back then had more fear and reverence for God than the saved person does today. You know how I know that? Because we live our lives the way we do. We do the things we do. We don't even think about a holy God and His righteous, holy attitude about what we do. We just do it. We just do it. In fact, that's what it says in Psalms 36.1. It says, The transgression of the wicked saith in my heart that no, there's no fear of God before his eyes. For he flattereth himself. There he is in his own eyes. There we are. There I am. Until his iniquity be found to be hateful. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He hath left off to be wise and to do good. He devises mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He abhorreth not evil. Why? Because it starts in his heart. It works through his mouth. And then he flatters himself. And he comes to the point where his eyes, that he said, Wow, look what I've done. Job chapter 21, verses 6 through 15. Boy, what a great passage this is. In reality, Job is talking about back in Genesis chapter 6. But in reality, we know what Genesis chapter 6 says because the Bible says, As it was in the days of Noah, shall so be in the coming in the days of the Son of Man. It's talking about us. One of these three-point roundabouts to get you right where you're at today. He says in verse 6, Even when I remember, I am afraid, and trembling taketh hold of my flesh. Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? Their seed, that's their kids, is established in their sight, not God's sight, their sight. With them and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. God let them alone. See? No church. No Bible. No nothing. Raise your kids the way you were raised. They'll raise their kids the way they were raised. And the whole thing's a train wreck. Whole thing's a mess. Their bowl gendereth and faileth not. Their cow calveth and calveth not her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. They take the timbrel and the harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. Here it comes. Therefore, because of what we just said, because there's no fear of God in their eyes, because they don't reverence God and who He is or what He can do. Hey, and when I talk about fear in God, I'm not talking about you every time you do something wrong, you just stand there shaking because you think God's in big shoes going to come out of the sky and squash you like a bug. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that you and I have a reverence for God. That we understand that God is holy. He has holy standards. And there's things that we need to go. And God will judge us just as He'll judge the unsaved people and as He judges the nations. 
There may be three different judgments, but you're not going to, I'm not going to, no unsaved man is going to, and certainly no nation on planet earth is ever going to escape the judgment of God. Look at verse 14. Therefore, they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? That's where we're at today. And the tragedy is some of God's people are right there today. That's their attitude. That's their attitude. A couple of weeks ago, and I, 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 we had a, a couple that came in, and they were slightly alleviated. And uh, I was hoping they'd be back. You know, I tell you what, I, and, I, and they were sitting over here in the corner. And a lot of people came up to me afterwards, and they said, boy, you know, you handled that well. I don't know if I, and, and I thought to myself, you know, because they were over there, and uh, if you weren't here, we had two people come in that were, I mean, she was, she was three sheets in the wind and two blown away. I mean, she was, she was dropped down drunk. And, and it bless their heart, they're alcoholics. They lived down here in a little motel, and they were coming up here a couple of weeks before and saw the church and said, let's go to church. Left their vodka bottle outside, came into church, sit down here, you know, had him sign up for softball, you know, was hoping we could pick him up and get him to come, work with him, you know. But you know what? They didn't come back for a week or two. And then I remember that, John, you asked me where they were, and I said, they ain't been back. And you come up and said, no, they were sitting up front. Boy, were they sitting up. They weren't sitting up front. <clears throat> they were laying up front. <clears throat> And they were sitting there, and she was gone. She couldn't, even, she couldn't even look. And he was almost as gone. And I'm over here, and I'm up here trying to preach. And he's over there, just as loud as I am, you know. And I, and, I, and, I, and I wanted to be kind. But at the same time, I got a message to preach. See? Now, I could have taken two approaches at that point. I could have said, hey, what in the world do you mean coming in here trying to disrupt my service? Ushers, throw them out. Now, you know what kept me from saying that? I'll tell you what kept me. Here's two people that were smashed drunk and they came to church. I had people that were sober, didn't bother coming that morning. Ooh, you liked that one, didn't you? Want me to give it to you again? I want me to bring it around a second time to you, huh? How do I get mad at them? And then when I found out later what he was doing, how did I ever get mad? And one of our deacons, Joe, took him out and took, got him something to eat, tried to help him sober up and took him back. But how do I get mad? He's over here. Trying to, he's less drunk than she is. She's totally out of the world. He's trying to tell her what I'm saying at the same voice level I'm trying to say it in the first place. How are you mad at that? I don't know how you get mad at that. I look at something like that and I thought to myself, you know what? Hey, how do I get upset at that? Sure, we'll help them. Sure, they should have sat in the back. But you know what? Big deal. So what? You know what? That's what this church is about, helping people. Think I care if somebody gets drunk over here and, and bless his heart, he's doing the best he can to explain it to her so she understands what's being said? When I got people that were sober, that were still in bed, that didn't bother to come, and they made their way here, I mean, I'm just glad they didn't wind up in a field someplace and said, hey, we're a church, we're having it outside today. But that's where America's at. America, the Christians, they don't need God today. They don't need God. They don't need, they don't care. You know what? There, there's, there's a couple that were dead, blind, staggering drunk, and they saw their need to be in church, even though when they should have went home and slept it off. And there's some of God's people who don't even bother to come. You know why? God's people get to the place. I'm telling you. A hundred and some years ago, man, an unsaved man had more fear of God and more respect for God than God's people have today. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon, wiser man than ever lived. He said it. 
when he ended up Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, that great book that deals with all the ideas, the concepts, and the odysseys of man. He says when he finished that book, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. You know what it is, boys? Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? Verse 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That's why. That's why. Well, the next thing. Next thing's man's feet. Now, I don't know. It says there in, 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 uh, it says in Romans 3.15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, and this is a great study in itself. Feet in the Bible always represent where you go for God. I don't know if you know that or not. Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8 says, Their feet uh, run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts or thoughts of iniquity, uh, or wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not. There is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. You know what Job said one time? He said, Job said in Job 5, 7, he said, Yet man is born into trouble, and the sparks fly upward. You know what that means? That means you get, set, you get born, I get born, I'm totally depraved. God has a standard that he wants me to go by. I won't go by it. I resist God. And boy, the friction between my life and God's life produces sparks. You know what your problems are in life? They're not problems, they're sparks. You ever take two pieces of metal and clang them together? Two pieces of metal that won't give? Two pieces of metal that, that, will, that, that won't break? And you keep banging them together, you get sparks. You know what you do? God's will is not going to break. You think yours won't too. But what happens is, when the two come together, from the time man is born, the sparks fly upward. Why? He's depraved. And the Bible says his feet run to evil. You know what? Over there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, it says, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. When you get saved, you ought to get ready to move out for God. I don't mean you're going to move someplace. I mean, but you mean you're going to go someplace uh, around the world, but you're going to go someplace where God is using you right now. You ever study this? Bible says over there in Exodus when they, were, when they ate the Passover. Back there in Exodus 12, when they ate the Passover, that Passover is a picture of you and me getting saved. Christ was our Passover lamb. Do you ever see what it says back there in chapter 12? He says, he says when you eat that Passover... Eat it in haste with your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand. It is the Lord's Passover. You know why? There's a picture of something. When you get saved, you better get ready to move out and do something for God. That's your feet. You ever notice you can't spell God without the word go, G-O-D? You ever notice you can't spell the word gospel without putting the word go in it? You know why? Because when you get saved, when I get saved, we're to go for God. Go with the gospel. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And yet in our world where our feet take us, let me tell you something. Well, you better be move out for God. Do something for God. God has something that he wants you to do. Something he, he, someplace he wants you to go. That's why he gave you feet. Feet shod for the preparation. My job is to get you ready. Get your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That wherever you go, you can tell that story. And wherever you go, you can be the witness that God wants you to be. The next thing, man's thoughts. This is found in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. You know what man's thoughts are? I'll tell you what it says, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know the biggest challenge I have? The absolutely biggest challenge I have as a human being is to quit thinking like the way I think and start thinking the way God thinks. I've got to be honest with you. That is the toughest challenge for me that I have. And yet, with all that in, my, in mind, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul asked a question. He says, he asked a question, then he answers his own question. He says simply this, who hath known the mind of God? That's a great question. How do I know what God wants me to do? Okay, Bob, I'm to have my feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How do I know that? How do I know what God wants me to do? You say God wants me to go. How do I know where he wants me to go? Well, he gave you his mind. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's what he's asking. He says, who hath known the mind of God? And then he says, we have the mind of Christ. And then he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I, I, I hit this a lot. And I, I keep this before you all the time. Absolutely all the time. Because I think it, without a doubt, it is the number one thing, uh, and this goes along with doctrine, is the number one thing that I have to try to get you to do. And I'm fully aware that I'll never succeed. I wish I could. I wish that I could say in my heart that I know that 100% of you will do this. I, it's not a reality. I know it won't happen, and I can't let that affect it. I've got to come to the point where I just keep on focusing uh, with what uh, I, the ones that will. But here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. I, I know that my job is simply this. My job is to keep challenging you to learn biblical principles, to learn doctrine, to learn what the Bible says is right in your conduct for life. My job is to preach the messages that will convict you when you don't want to do what's right. My job is to take it on the chin. Have you get mad at me if you want to? Have you get snarly with me if you want to? Have you get testy with me if you want to? That's okay. But the bottom line is this. There are certain things that we do, certain things that I do, certain concepts and ideas that I have, that we have, that God's people have, that you know what, are simply wrong. And the only way we're going to fix that is to understand what God says about it and then find out what God's mind says and then let this mind be in me which was also in Christ Jesus. That's why I harp and harp and harp and harp and harp and harp upon you about learning biblical principles. I know you won't all do it. I know that some of you will do it. Some of you do it halfway. Some of you won't do it at all. But that's beside the point. That is what my job is in a single form, is to get you to learn doctrine, to get you to know what's right, and that when a situation comes into your life, a circumstance comes into your life, something you've got to deal with, maybe it's pleasant, maybe it's not, un, not so pleasant, whatever it case. It might be with your kids, it might be with your spouse, it might be with your job, it might be with this, it might be with that. You don't have to just get, you don't have to get all over the page with what you've got to do. You simply go to the mind of Christ. You simply go to God's mind. Find out what God tells you that you need to do about this given situation and then do it. You know why none of you amen on that? Because that sounds so simple. But it is absolutely the hardest thing to do in this world. Absolutely. Why? Because I'm fighting my flesh. There's a war going on inside me this morning, as there is you. And that war wants to take away everything that God is trying to do in my mind. And brother, that's my battle today. 
That's my battle. And my issue today is my thoughts. Because my thoughts aren't guard thoughts. And boy, I'll tell you what. And this is why Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 says, we've talked about the old concept, attitude versus action. What the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, uh, as, a, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's where we're at. You know what the next one is? The next one is my imagination. If you have your Bible this morning, I, I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 8. I think you ought to see this. We know in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, when God was dealing with Noah. And we saw all, all was going on there. And, and there's an interesting, interesting verse in, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And it says this. God come down and looks at the time of Noah, looks at the people. And the Bible says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil. You see how everything that we've talked about so far, Everything we've talked about, this is why I did it, number one. Everything we've talked about goes back to your heart and my heart. Because that's where it's at. That's where it's at. Now look what he says in Ezekiel. Now this is your imagination. This is an Old Testament passage that is dealing with a story that shows you, in case you don't pick it up on your own, this shows you and me what our biggest problem, excuse me, I'm sorry, what my biggest problem is. Not you, my, me. Look at verse 7. And he brought me to the door of the court. And I looked, and behold, a hole in the wall. Then said he unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. But when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. Now you see this door? Well, this door was hidden behind a wall. And they obviously had to dig <laughs> someplace to get to the wall to get to the door. <laughs> Verse 9. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold, the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things, an abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. Now, you get the impression here from reading this that it's kind of like this. He's kind of, Ezekiel's kind of hanging out, and God says, hey, uh, dig in this wall. So he gets a, I don't know, whatever he gets, and he starts knocking the sheetrock away and moving it all down. And he says, wow, Lord, there's a door under there. And the Lord says, well, open that door and go in. And so he walks, he opens that door and he kind of walks in there and it's kind of like a little, uh, you know, a little movie theater in there or an art gallery. It's, but it's in the dark. And he's standing there and he, he's saying, look on that wall, everything that is portrayed, all the idols of Israel, all the uncleanness of Israel, all the abominable beasts, all the idols are, the, are portrayed upon a wall round about. See, you get the idea that he's talking about a literal wall with a door with a literal room? Ah, look at verse 11. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients and of the house of Israel. In the midst of them stood Jazaniah, the son of Shephpan, and every man his censer in his hand with a, a thick cloud of incense went up. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. You know what that is? That's somebody's mind. That's somebody's imagination. Now, you've got a thing there where it's like, you notice how they had to dig down to get in there because it wasn't easy to get in? That shows me that in all of our minds, there's things buried down there that are in the dark. And boy, and we, and know what, look what it says down there. I love this. For they say, ah, here's where your heart deceives you. For they say, the Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. You see, hidden chambers of our imagination. 
We're, we're big today, and I think they're neat. I kind of got a poor man one, but some of them out there with these, these home entertainment centers, you know. They actually look like little movie theaters. I think they're the greatest thing in the world. I mean, I mean, your popcorn and hot dogs are a lot cheaper in your own house than you are if you go to the theater and eat them. I mean, you buy $12 for, t- you know, $9 for a ticket and then $67 for a popcorn and a Coke. I mean, <laughs> do it at home. You could buy, pay for a big screen TV and put it in your own movie theater and charge your friends money to come in and, and a lot better. But you know what? Uh, this concept today, and it's a big deal, and I think it's great. I think it's really neat. These home entertainment centers where, I mean, uh, you got one that just knocks your socks off. I mean, she sit, we were sitting over there one night, letting him be screened, and he's got the, the sounds around, you know, going on here. And, you know, somebody shoots or something blows up, sounds like it blew up behind you. you know, I, I think it's great. I mean, better than the theaters, really, because you're more condensed, you know, and all that stuff. But, and, and that's a big rage today. But you know what? I got some news for you. The real entertainment center, not something you got in your home. It's what you got in your mind up here. That's what, and I wonder what's playing tonight. I remember the Joshua chapter 7. Remember the sin of Achan? How Achan went out there, you know, and he was, uh, he was out there fighting the battle like everybody else, and they were told before they ever got into the battle that there were certain things they couldn't do because the, the spoils belonged to the Lord. This was the first battle, and he took all the spoils as a tithe, so to speak. And Awaken's out there, you know, and he's shooting people down like that, you know, and he's, he's passing, helping, fighting these Midianites, and after a while, you know, he looks around there, and he's checking out the dead bodies, and he rolls over this Babylonian guy, and he's... You know, there's, you know, there's $10 on your floor under your seat. But if you don't get it, I am because that's, that's that, that, that man saying to me, I love you, Bob. I love you, Bob. That's, that's, don't be do- oh, is that your bookmark? No. Oh, say, I need a bookmark really bad with my Bible. And so he's out there, you know, and he rolls over this dead Babylonian, you know, and he rolls over and this guy, he's got this beautiful, you know, suit of clothes on and some gold falls out of his out of his pocket you know and, and he looks around you know nobody's looking you know and slings that oozy man gets down there you know and he gets that gold down there and puts it in the top of his boot you know and gets his garment off sticks it in his musette bag you know and he's up there walking around you know and he's nobody saw him you know and so he he walks back to the back to the company area and gets into his tent gets out his trench shovel dumps that money out <coughs> start digging it out <coughs> now, he knew god said don't take it he knew it belonged to the lord he knew he was wrong when he did it you know what he did? Got that trench shovel out, dug that hole, put it all down there, put that thing all back there, damped that all around, got a big old bush. You know how they did it in the Indian times, don't you? Huh? Probably put a foot locker on it right back there. And after he had done the deception, after he had disobeyed God, after he knew what God told him not to do, he went ahead and did it, and then he hid it in the floor of his tent. You know what he did? He did the same thing that I do. Straighten his uniform up, slung his weapon right, put his stuff back on, Walked back out and said, hey, brother, how's the battle going? Sure was tough today, wasn't it? But, oh, isn't God good? Didn't God give us a great victory? And nobody knew but God. You know why? God always, you know why it's best just to confess your sin when you do it? We all do it. The difference between some of you and some of the other of you, that when you sin, some of you confess it, Right on the spot, get it right, and some of us bury it in our tent floor. That's all. And the problem we I had, not you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry again. It's a, it's a preacher's Freudian slip. The problem I have is my, it's, it's my home video, my home chamber. It's buried behind the wall with a door locked. And you got, and when you get it, it's dark. And across the wall 
is my real entertainment center. We're depraved. We're depraved. The next issue is man's hands. Now, hands in the Bible, I told you, feet in the Bible, where you go, hands in the Bible, what you do. They're great studies. Great studies. Psalms chapter 18, verse 34 said, He teaches my hands to war so the bow of steel is broken on my on mine arms. We call them armies. You know why we call them armies? Because of that verse right there. Armies have arms. We call them weapons. You know where you carry a weapon? In your hands. You know what makes your arms strong? Taking your hand with your fingers, going through the Bible. And go back sometime in Proverbs chapter 30 and look at the virtuous woman and watch how what she does with her hands. Her hands she holds at a staff. All the things she does with her hands. Notice sometimes in the book of Song of Solomon, we're talking about the hands and the fingers. You know why? Because it's your hands and your fingers that you flip through the page of that Bible with. And that's what strengthens your arms. That's what strengthens your arms. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 3 says, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue has muttered perverseness. That's where we're at. Now, once I lay out those seven things, the obvious is, what in the world can I do for God? I mean, Bob just took everything away from me that everything I ever did. He said there's no good. Well, first mistake, I wasn't talking about you, I was talking about me. But it's like throwing up. If we're in close proximity, some of my throw up will get on you. So I hope that it works. But the Bible says there's none that doeth good. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. And the best state I am in is vanity. How in the world do I, not you, I ever do anything for God meaningful that God accepts? And let me tell you something. That's so true in the ministry. It's true of our Christian lives. But, brother, in the ministry, it's really true. Now, quickly, in the last few minutes we have here, I'm going to give you the answer to this. And I'm going to show you three things that you have got to get down and have in perspective and have them in a balance in your life. An unsaved man can never do these things. Frankly, an uns a saved man can, but unfortunately, most of them will not. I do this every hour of the day. I remind myself of these three things. Every situation I'm faced with, every circumstance I deal with. And the first thing has simply to do with your attitude of heart. You need to keep your heart tender before God. You need to be, you quit, need to be quit so, you need to quit being so thin-skinned uh, when it comes to preaching. You need to take rebuke, take correction, enjoy it. Learn to develop a, 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 an attitude that you enjoy the things of God. That don't become indifferent to God. The Bible talks about put on the breastplate of righteousness. Protect your heart from the things that come at you, the fiery darts of the wicked. Ask yourself on a regular basis throughout the day, or whatever you're doing, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing this for me? Am I doing this for me or am I doing this for the Lord? Work at loving God. Work at loving God more every day of your life. And boy, that's a constant effort right there. Fo you know how you do that? You focus on what he's done for you. Don't focus on what you've done for him. And that's what we all do. There's a balance. This is the balance. Don't get up tomorrow and go through your life focusing on all that you've done for God. I'm not saying you shouldn't enjoy that, but you've got to balance that out with all that he's done for you. You've got to realize that it's a balance. It's a perspective that you cannot lose. 
I gave you last week a great passage. I hope you put it in your Bible. Psalms chapter 40. I waited patiently on the Lord, inclined unto me, and heard my cry, brought me up also out of, the miry pit, out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my going. Put a new song on my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see and fear and trust in the Lord. That is a great passage to keep you where you need to be, where he brought you from. You keep your perspective of who you are, who you really are, and don't get puffed up with what you know or what you've done. And that's so easy for us. It's so easy for us to get puffed up because when we do something, one, we're happy about it, two, we're glad about it, but we don't have the balance yet. So it gets, it's that look-at-me attitude. It's that, well, I'll show you. It's about when, when you, you, you feel like you're in competition with somebody else. And you're, trying to, you're not trying to please God. You're trying to upstage the other person so you, you look like you're more spiritual than they are. Got to keep the perspective. You got to keep that attitude of heart. And you got to constantly ask yourself, why are you doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Second thing, whatever you do, whatever I do, we are to act in accordance with a biblical principle. For God to accept my work or whatever I do, it must be based on what the Bible tells me to do. You cannot, as a Christian, fly by the seat of your pants using your grandmother's homespun theology or your own concoction of what you're going to get through life or be like the butterfly woman and survive in this world. If you're going to be accepted by God with what you do, then you better have a biblical principle behind what you do. And that's why I bring it back to doctrine. You have to learn in time. Now, God cuts you a lot of grace right now, a lot of slack. He knows where you're at, and I'm not talking about tomorrow, but I'm saying this. You have got to learn biblical principles, and with everything you do, you better have a principle to back up what you got to do. You know what? There's times in your life, especially if you become a pastor, that you're going to be put in situations where there is really no right thing to do. The right thing was taken from you. You don't have that option. You will find yourself in situations where the problem, the situation is so bad or it, it, it was so bad or it's a situation that, you know what, the, the right thing to do is impossible. And sometimes you're left with a decision of doing the less wrong thing. Now that sounds terrible and some of you pious gas bags out there saying, oh yeah, till you find yourself in that situation. You can't do the right thing. Not because you don't want to. The circumstance come to you, you don't have the option to do that. But you've got to try to solve this problem, fix this issue. So you know what you've got to do? You've got to look at the one that's going to cause the less damage in a situation where the damage has already been done. And you better have a principle behind what you do when you do that. You better not just say, well, let's just flip the coin here and see which way we're going to go. You, I'll tell you, you will be criticized either way you go. You better go the route that you can defend yourself with biblical principles instead of, well, I just did this because I felt like this was the right thing to do. You better understand the principle behind what you do in every circumstance you do because there's too much in God's people flying by the seat of their pants. Well, I want to do this because I, I want to do it, and then I'm going to say, well, God, help me do that. Well, no. You know how God know, you know God helped you do it or not or wanted you to do it? Give me the principle. Give me the principle. Give me the principle. Whatever you do and whatever I do, my friend, you have to realize that you have to act in accordance with the biblical principles that apply. And that's why I'm going to say it again. You have to know biblical principles. I have three goals for you in everything I do. You notice that's nine goals now that I said I only had one for you in each thing? I just keep finding these things to add to your plate. Sorry. 
I have three goals for you. When I preach, when I teach, when I work one-on-one with you, in the back of my mind, I've never told you this probably, never give it to you. You'll probably forget it after I tell you. But I have three goals. Three goals. It has nothing to do with teaching you the Bible. It has nothing to do with, you know, who the Antichrist is. It has nothing to do with what we talked about last Thursday night, though. That was great stuff to talk about. My three goals are much more basic than that. I have three goals that everything I do, behind everything I say, behind everything I preach, behind everything I try to accomplish, I have in the back of my mind for every one of you the same three goals. And I will have these same three goals. They will never change. There won't be four. There won't be two. I won't delete one. They're the absolute same three goals that I will have 50 years from now if Jesus doesn't come. They're what I had 30 years ago, and it'll be everything and every day of my life. When I see you, when I work with you, when I preach, when I teach, this church is about these three things. One, I want you to know what you believe. I desperately want you to know what you believe. I want you to understand the Bible. I have the passion for that. All of my teaching, all of my preaching, all of my one-on-one, all of the time that we spend going through the intimate, intricate things of the Bible is for point number one. I want you to, I want you to know the Bible. I want you to know the Word of God. The second thing, not do I, know, do I want you to believe it, but the second goal is I want you to know why you believe it. Isn't it enough for me to say you know it? I want you to know why you believe it. I want you to be to go into that Bible in any given circumstance or situation, be able to open up the Scriptures and delete and lay out and show out everything that you've got. For me, it's not enough for you to say, I believe it. I want you to know why you believe it. Most of you believe the King James Bible is the Word of God, but very few of you could get up this morning and say, this is why I believe it's the Word of God. That has to change at some point in your life. Most of you could stand up and say, well, I believe that I can't lose my salvation, but you could not get up and lay out why you know that. The third thing, I want you to know how to apply what you know. It does you no good to believe the book. It does you no good to know why you believe it. You see, those are the academics. I can teach you the Bible, and I can teach you church history and show you all the things, the manuscript evidence, and give you all of that. But the real thing I can't do, but the other two I can push you that way, is to get you to be able to apply to your own life what you believe and what you know why you believe. Application is everything. Application is everything. That's why I try to get you to the point where I I move you along and get you up to different things. I like when challenges come into your life or circumstances come into your life, things that set you off kelter a little bit. Sometimes I'll do it on purpose just to see because if you're not pushed, if 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 you're not pushed to run and you're not pushed to move forward, most of God's people just stay where they're at. And the only way you move ahead is by learning to apply what you know. Applying what you know. We're like sponges. How many times you heard that with little kids? Boy, careful what you say around them because they're just like sponges. Well, we're all sponges. And around here, the bucket's always full. And you're like a sponge. It gets down in that bucket and you pick it up after it's been soaking in that bucket for about, for about uh, an hour. And you know what? It's just running water everywhere. And if you try to pick anything up with it, you just put more water down than you pick up. You know why? Because that sponge has to be wrung out before it can pick any more water up. And some of God's people sometimes get like that sponge. The Bible says the full soul loatheth the honeycomb. You can get so much of the Bible. Listen to me. You can get so much of the Bible and learn so much of the Bible 
and it'll turn you against the Bible if the other two concepts aren't working for you. You can get all the Bible you want. You can be a full soul. You can have all the honeycomb you can stand and wind up loading it because you're not applying what you're learning. You're warehousing it. You become like that proverbial sponge. The last thing. What we do for God must be done in the right spirit. See? Right attitude of heart, a principle involved behind what we do, and then what we do for God must be done in the right spirit. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 talks about four spirits that are in this world. You got an animal spirit, you got man's spirit, you got God's spirit, you got an unclean spirit. A man can have three of those four. Over there in Job chapter 25, verses 1 through 5, you've got what I believe to be the six questions God's going to ask every believer to jump and see to Christ. You know what the last question is? Because the last question has to do with everything that's with the, with the five before. You know what the last question is? Whose spirit came from you?